listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Hugh Hendry. Hugh is the founder and former CIO of Eclectica Asset Management. Enjoy my conversation with Hugh Hendry. Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question I'd like to start off with guests is take us back to 2008. What was going through your mind? What were you doing at the time? Up until then, we saw... The SNL crisis, we saw Russian crisis 98, we had a lot of things along the way, long-term capital management, but nothing was quite like that, maybe up until <laughs> up until what we're seeing right now. But let's take us back there first and what you were doing. You mentioned Russian crisis. Um, in 1999, I had left Scotland um, to to work in the financial industry in London. I had moved from the rigors of Ailey Gifford in Edinburgh, uh, deeply fundamental, very rigorous business. Um, and, but at the time, having worked for eight years in, in as an analyst for a pension fund manager, um, I found I couldn't get a job because everyone wants deep silo knowledge, whereas I had purposely been moved and shifted around from Japan to the US, from large companies to small companies to debt. And, and the guiding principle was it didn't matter the, the location of where you were stationed. They wanted these young kids to be able to sense blood in the water. Like you could, you had to be able to identify a good business and it didn't need a passport. It didn't need an, an industrial or a country classification. Um, anyway, I finally made it to London and during the after, aftershocks of the Russian crisis. I was having a great time. I always had a great time when everyone was kind of mourning. I was dancing on graves. And at that time, I met Chris Spinotti, who um, is in European terms is something of a legend because he was perhaps the second, third or fourth hedge fund manager to launch 
funded by kind of Soros and the whole Soros uh, mafia. Um, and, and you know, I, I met him at that point and he said, hey, come, come and have dinner with me. And, and after dinner, he said, hey, you are one of the pirates and I would, I would really like you to, to work with us. Um, and we fast forward kind of like 10 years later and I managed, I've left Crispin and I'm managing the Eclectica Macro Fund. And I had spent um, the best part of two years anticipating the events of 2008. You know, when we, when I watched the big short, I, I kind of didn't meet or know all of the characters, but the character, the broker from Deutsche Bank, Greg, what's his face? Um, I was, I think, initially the first and certainly the only manager that would welcome and entertain Greg. He had nothing to, I mean, he had, he was, and he, and he truly was, when you met him, he was just, he was despicable. You shook hands and you were like counting your fingers afterwards. He was so slick. Um, and, and it was my analyst who said, Hey, look, please, this is complicated, but sit down, listen to him, listen to him. And at the, at the end of the meeting, which went on for hours now, get rid of this guy and but we sat down and looked at the numbers again and the numbers were just so incredible and so we we'd invite him back and back again and we were all set to have the big short on in february of 2007 but with our hedge fund it was i want to say somewhat unique in that we made a market in the nev of the fund weekly which is to say you could trade you could uh, come in or come out and at that time, there wasn't sufficient competence from the custodians that the market price that we would make to trade the units would be verifiable or robust, given the nature of how those instruments traded. And so we were not permitted, um, which was a setback. But we went on to take on a position which um, was an, uh, an options-based strategy derived from the notion that the Fed, which was at 5, 5.25% interest rates would go to zero. Um, and if I then hesitate for a second and, and take you to, I think, the end of 2005, you know, I've been the original new generation gold bug. I had launched the fund in at the end of 2002 specifically to own gold, hence the macro mandate. In 2003, the first calendar year, we we crystallized a 50% gain. And and then fast forward to 2006, we said, hey, listen, the, the only way gold goes higher from this point is if we have a deflationary crisis. Because only if the Fed goes from five to zero, like the Bank of Japan, only then can we discuss the second act for gold. Um, so 2008, long Long-winded answer to your question. 2008, um, everything we had prophesied had come to pass. And for the calendar year, we made, I want to say, 32%. For the month of October, not only did I make a documentary for public television in the UK called Don't Bank on the Bailout, but we made 50% that month. And, and there's a there's a there's a 60 minute documentary of of me being in the office with the U.S. opening, you know, SP opening, slamming, you know, down whatever it was before the circuit breakers 10. percent um, And I can remember the cameraman having a seizure, and we had to call the ambulance. He was literally getting CPR uh, on on the floor. I was having to step over dead bodies to to trade that damn thing. But so lastly, what I want to say is the kind of, I had to then look at it through the, this kind of hazy moral prism because I recall the night that the Lehman Brothers, the Sunday night that Lehman Brothers had been like put out of service. And I, and then I am and I just made, I made $200 million for my clients. And I was jubilant because, you know, this had been a, a story that began with meeting Chris Minotti in 2000 in 1999, this has been uh, in starting the hedge fund in 2002, in reversing course in 2000, late 2005, 
in beating my head against a wall for two years. And then suddenly, you know, we had outstanding returns when everyone was dying. And yet, as I kind of skipped to the kids' school, dropping the, the girls off for school, um, at this private prep school, you could see fear and sorrow in the eyes of parents. Um, a lot of the parents had been Lehman Brothers employees, and, and that thing was a was a cult. They, they believed in it, and, and pretty much, you know, all of their wealth was denominated in, in the equity. They never sold it, and they they were looking as if they were going to have to pull children out. So, um, just the juxtaposition of the jubilation to this immense sorrow, I'll never forget. Anyway, enough on that part. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting story. And and fast forward to I remember seeing you on I think it was Bloomberg and talking about how you said you died in active combat. Um, and t- take us move us forward to that point before we kind of go to present day because I think that that part was kind of interesting as well of of, of why you chose to shut down. Well, um, remember, I'm I'm a drama queen. <laughs> I remember that the remuneration is kind of sweet if you can make it work. Uh, remember, hedge funds are like restaurants. It's a high-risk business. Most fail. Uh, those that succeed, again, are dancing on the graves of those that failed, and so the returns are that much higher. Um, but after, my number one objective in setting out was to achieve longevity. I loved it so much that I, I wanted to go back each day. Uh, and I ran a global macro fund for 15 years. Uh, and so now when I look back, I think, I don't care what the return was. I can achieve the number one item on the list, longevity. Um, the returns, I think we made, we compounded around about 8%, but in a manner which was just uncorrelated to, to any other risk asset. So, I'm kind of, I can look back and I'm content. But to your point, I, I've had the best part of two, just over two years sabbatical, uh, because I, at the end, I was passionate, but I was finding the business joyless. And I was drained, emotionally drained of all of these moments where you go, oh, <laughs> you know, when you, when you wake up, and you and you and you you know you see the you you log into your uh, Bloomberg, and Bloomberg's on your phone yeah, and it's beside your bed and that's the first thing you look at and you're like shit you know I'm gonna die um, and I was saying to someone the other day there's got to be a guardian of a of a morgue somewhere who's really confused because he kept getting messages from the collector and saying. We got bodies coming in. We got bodies coming in. Um, and of course we never died. Uh, but kind of, of course, chemically somewhere in my body, uh, that mortuary keeper is, is, is fatigued and confused because definitely the, the, uh, uh, the fear was that we were taking mass casualties <laughs> in my investment career. But, um, to that point, I want to say that, um, Another principle of mine was that I never feared being wrong. Uh, I don't wish to say that in a pompous manner. What I want to say is that um, we had thought, we had put so much emphasis, I think 80% of the analysis goes into you know, what can go wrong uh, and in terms of surviving the trip. Can you make the trip from A to B? Um, and so I want to say that I never feared the consequences of being wrong because we kind of worked that one out, you know. So we had a big, big position in 2008. It was a position that was based on systemic risk. Um, and yet the brokers were phoning me up and pleading with me to close the position. If I wasn't phoning them. I was saying, hey, I'd, liquidity it had been designed that in the event of a systemic event, liquidity would come knocking at my door, pleading with me to let it out. Yeah? So I never feared the consequences of my decisions. 
Yeah, and now moving more to present day, you recently caused big waves in kind of a fintwit. Sometimes people call it uh, financial Twitter, and um, some of the uh, financial publications you got written up, and you basically joined Twitter, you joined Instagram, you set up your own podcast. What made you choose to uh, to come back now and start sharing some of your thoughts? Was it this most recent crisis that happened, or was it something else? Uh, well, a little self-promotion. I would certainly like to encourage people to visit Hugh Hendry Official on Instagram. Um, I fear that many of you seem to be allergic to the platform of Instagram. Um, I get it. I never used Facebook, but uh, with Instagram, I want to say the band, the bandwidth in terms of being able to release Instagram television, so like 10, 12-minute videos, allows me to – it's like a therapy. You, I'm seeking uh, an audience to provide therapy to listen. Uh, why? Why now? Um, I got to say, egotistically, after two years, I think I had gravitated to being a, a hedge fund manager, to being a property villa manager in the Caribbean. And don't get me wrong, I think I was a pretty good villa manager, but I think as a Desperately overeducated villain manager. And I was fearful that I was becoming irrelevant. Um, and I spent too much time beating myself up, putting myself down. The last thing you want to do, let me share uh, an observation. Um, I was persuaded to go and see a, a rock band of my childhood. Uh, you know, they're always on stage coming back because that's where the money is. I saw Simple Minds. They're from Glasgow. I'm from Glasgow. Um, and my thing is never go back, but a, a good friend persuaded me. And the audience are there, you know, is, is a, is a temple to pay worship to, to their youth and to the images retained and it's kind of why you should go back. They, they didn't, they, there was nothing youthful about that audience or that, that performance. But my point is that the lead singer spent all of his time and it's a very Glaswegian, perhaps Scottish, uh, attitude where you wish to put yourself down and you think that's kind of charming but it's actually it's insulting um, people are not there to hear that you think that you were never a great singer um, and people never really wanted me to say oh well you know I, like I make all these mistakes I screw up I'm really really shit believe me there's enough people out there who want to kind of who can take me down I don't have to do it okay so you know free of the shackles and let's just have fun and, and I think I was a little bit inspired by that app, uh, the iTunes app uh, masterclass. I don't have their budget, but when you go on that and you see Anne Wintertour or Gordon Ramsay or, you know, uh, you, you see these, a, a wide spectrum of it's a, essentially um, intellectual capital and they're telling their story and there's an audience and the audience needs to hear that story. And I think, sure, you can buy the book, but there's just something engaging about video. Again, bandwidth is just intangibly uh, stronger. That I thought the easiest, I had to break the status quo, and I had to take a step out of my comfort zone. And so I thought, I'm going to do this confession series. I'm going to do it point to camera piece and I'm going to put it on Instagram and YouTube and I'm going to kind of put, go out there on Twitter to, to, to tell people I'm there. And, and you know what? I'll, I'll be back in the flow and I'll be subject to random things. And here we are. I think I've been live on social media maybe two or three weeks and, and now, you know, now we're chatting, Ryan and, and you know, uh, I've never been busier. And I, I have to say, I, I wake up with a smile and I wake up and I'm, rather than checking stock prices, I'm checking the number of people who are not following me on Instagram. That's great. And 
we're going to link all those uh, profiles in the show notes and make it easier for people to find some of your new work. Um, let's transition and start talking a little bit about what's going on in markets from a kind of a very high level. Um, I used to, you know, I've been following your work for some time now, but I remembered listening to you on Macro Voices. This was at least four or five years ago, I think. I maybe. Uh, even more so, I can't remember exactly, but you had a great quote on one of those podcasts talking about how it's very tough for a global macro hedge fund to even outperform the permanent portfolio, which is, um, you know, if people are familiar with that, uh, a mix of gold, long bonds, equities, and I guess it's cash. Um, that was a pretty interesting at the time. I was like, wow, that, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> Cause there's a, there's a big, obviously conversation and, and battle going on between indexing and active management. It's been raging for a while and kind of coming to a head now with, with all this indexing and kind of passive money and flows coming in and out of the market. But let's talk a little about, you know, that comment that you made and kind of a, a broad view of, of where markets are and and how you're looking at things. That's a big question. Um, so the permanent portfolio of the and its various manifestations, risk parity. You know, you you, you kind of you can just sit there at 25% in dollar cash, 25% in S and P, 25% in precious metals. You might kind of want to have 80% in gold, 20 in in silver and then you kind of want to have fixed income treasury and you might want, again want to have a spectrum from from near like cash um, to kind of zero coupon long duration um, or you might kind of reject that according to the volatility of each category but kind of where we've been the last before the the, the virus, the pandemic, uh, uh, with quantitative easing, kind of volatility across all asset classes was converging to roughly like eight to 10, with the exception of FX, which is always a kind of like four or five percent forward at the, um, at the kind of dollar level, uh, dollar euro level. Um, and that investment model is simple, um, simple, seem to be, if you, if you just look at performance figures, um, seem to best capture um, the 50-year cycle. It's been 50 years. I, I see, I see, I record a cycle which is the cycle in in the distribution or the allocation of economic prosperity. And I believe we started. I believe we were at the end of the cycle of economic prosperity or its allocation of. Uh, and a cycle that began, let's say, in 1980, began with Thatcher, Reagan. But um, before that, it, it, it emerged at a point where the proletariat, you know, the, uh, the workers um, had, who, who had suffered, they had suffered with the Great Depression, um, who had been resuscitated after the by the war and by you know the 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 gold the the dollar standard in the fifties and the sixties allowed the and the US dollar being the reserve currency of the the world allowed the US banking system to expand credit at a really high rate and re-engage and build prosperity and more importantly share that prosperity more and more and more with uh, the labor as opposed to the, the capital class, or let's call it with debtors as opposed to creditors. And then at the blow off, and there's a blow off to every cycle, at the end, at the end, labor had organized itself whereby not only was it capturing all incremental productivity gains, it was then coming on top and it was charging like a monopoly rent. And that, that's where we were with the UK having to be bailed out by the IMF in the mid to late 1970s. And that cycle was brought, you always know, I'm, I'm, I think after this, I'm gonna, I've got to 
tweet thread that I've been working on this week. I've been obsessed. I'm going to try and release it now. At this point, it's always a question of competence. Is it good enough to to release? So I'm going to play with with you, Ryan, and see what you think. Um, If you want to understand where we are in that cycle, um, look at the French. Uh, The French are a great contrarian indicator. And they're the last ones to get it. And so the French, uh, when America was turning to Reagan and we had Friedmanites controlling uh, the monetary authorities and we had the appointment of Reagan and Thatcher in the Western world, the French appointed an uber leftist, uh, Francoise Michelon, who invited the communists <laughs> to join and form his government. And it's just like, dude, really? Like, you should have done that 50 years ago. That made sense 50 years ago. Today you are, like, at the top of this cycle, okay? Um, and and that thought came to me this week as I lamented on, um, at first blush, Macron, um, at the end of last year, came out with this bold, ambitious plan to sort out the overly generous state pension uh, loyalty program. Long overdue, but don't, don't you get it? <laughs> so, the, so we talked about Mitterrand was the president of the First Republic. Macron is the president of the Fifth Republic. This has been 50 years, long time has passed. And we have a French president who is going in and imposing a levy on the proletariat to please the creditor class. It's like, does it make, is it a, a noble and a good idea long overdue? Yes. Let's talk about timing. Is it practical? Are you serious? Don't you get it? And so, if you will, to my mind, the cock has crowed again. And I'm pretty sure that the cycle has, has flared out. The cycle which had been to the benefit of creditors. And that cycle should be best captured by that risk parity or that permanent portfolio model. Um, I'm trying to entertain, I'm trying to think of life after that cycle. And to answer that is difficult. Um, I think gold features in that. And so the question is, do you need this pocket of equities, treasuries, dollar and gold or can you just kind of replace all of that with gold actually with it would seem with the tweeting financial community they would say they would like to play it with uh, gold and the dollar and they're supporting reasons and justifications for that um so what 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 is the underlying ideology there and the, the thought process is that We now seem to be treading such a fine line. You don't need me to tell you that you know 10-year rates were rapidly approaching zero in, in the US with, with this pandemic, um, which is an indication of um, profound deflation, imminent profound deflation. You know, we're talking about GDP contractions, which are reminiscent of the early 1930s. Um, and just now that seems the most likely turn of events. So gold and what I want to, and what I want to say, and I, I like being provocative with language. Gold is appealing because it is hideously kinky. Mm-hmm. I don't know what hideously kinky means, but I like saying hideously okay. kinky. <laughs> um, there is a great movie, which is based on the book of the title with Kate Winslet and it's set in Morocco, which is one of my favorite places. But what I mean by hideously kinky is that um, you just never know uh, with gold. It is kind of um, schizophrenic. It's either um, a tips security, like, um, or let's call it a fang, but you know, like, give, like people are taking risks and they want to own this thing. Mm-hmm. Or is like a zero coupon bond, and in a deflationary world, is the max duration asset which goes up the most in a you know in a deflationary world. 
And more than that, it's like a globally. It's as if the Treasury, the Borge, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England all got together and guaranteed a global zero coupon uh, bond. That's and and so that's um, that's the two faces of gold and and the enthusiasm for gold just now is firstly predicated from the fact that it then it had a bear market from the highs of 2012, so it spent kind of eight years getting kicked around, which is good. I, I like the punishment of time. I like what that clears out. I like the fact that it seemed to have remedied, remedied itself. You know, I, I talk about myself being a paranoid schizophrenic. I hear voices in my head. And even when I was no longer with the Bloomberg terminal, I was aware that this was happening with gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and gold had started to outperform other risk assets prior to the pandemic. So very, very interesting. And, and just now, the balance of probabilities would suggest that gold will, will, will succeed, as my young daughter uh, comes into my bedroom, uh, that gold will succeed on that zero coupon uh, deflationary convexity, if you will. Right. And your tweet storm that you recently published and was featured in a, in a couple of websites that kind of broke down, um, and I you know with Twitter, sometimes it's hard to follow threads, but they have the certain features like the unroll, uh, the thread app and things like that. But let's get into your views about the dollar and also gold and how those kind of play into each other. Cause that seemed to be kind of a central theme of, of, of the tweet storm. Is that right? And yeah. I've talked to a few people about this already and I think people are trying to kind of wrap their heads around it. So let's try to take a high-level view and, and and try to break this down in a in a way that people can understand. I think. Yeah. Uh, so this isn't this isn't easy, and, right. and I <laughs> certainly I certainly don't have the. I'm not saying I've got the answers. This is, but I I try to answer these questions, and this is the this is what I come up with. This is the best that I can offer, and and I've recently. Um, <laughs> I subtly remembered my favorite book uh, from eight years ago, uh, which was uh, The Princes of the Yen. I want to say that was by Richard Werner. Um, and and if you're interested and you're thinking you're trading in these positions, you've got to find that book. Princes of the Yen, you, you'll find it. Um, okay. On the tweet, I had suggested that I... So the gold thing's happening, yeah. And the one thing we haven't mentioned, and the other obsession of mine, and it's necessary to answer this question, is that uh, something very unique happened last month, in the month of April. Uh, the S&P rallied 15%. That was a very strong rally. Uh, but at the same time, um, if you look at the VIX curve, VIX structurally shifted higher. So equity prices higher, volatility higher. Um, apart from two months at the end of 2012 in Japanese equities and vol, that has never happened before, excluding the crazy world of Weimar Germany and, 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 and the spectra of runaway, runaway hyperinflation. So mm-hmm. thought bubble, something very, very, un, very, very, very unusual just happened. And no one seems to be talking about it. Um, maybe that's the right thing, but we have to kind of try lace and integrate this into the conversation. And so I kind of went back and I reread, and again, another, if, if you're seeking homework, you've got to read, uh, Chris Cole, um, and his majestic piece by his group Artemis, and the paper was entitled Volatility at the End of the World. And Chris talks about um, Weimar inflation and its impact on, on the roll curve, or he tries to kind of work out from the data what would have happened to volatility during inflation. So, mm-hmm. okay. so let's go back a little bit further. Um, and what I wanted to say that the architect of the Weimar problem 
was damn French. It's always the damn French. Um, and, and the war retribution, uh, vis-a-vis the, the, the peace accord of Versailles. Uh, and Keynes very famously wrote about this damning critique, the economic consequences of the peace. And the economic consequences were that the, the French wishes, wished to push the German economy into, into a serfdom, whereby they would have to transfer so much gold to the French. Um, and, and that liability was, that was the liability that pushed the Germans to the printing press. And what I wanted to say in the tweets was that the responsibility to run the world's global currency, the reserve currency, uh, the dollar, is creating um, a similar situation, I think. It's creating a similar situation because the world goes out, and indeed uh, Washington and and its its brokers, the World Bank, the IMF, etc., have encouraged emerging economies for the last 50, 60, 70 years um, to kind of become part, part of PAC, like um, to become, to be essentially to be part of the dollar block, which is to say that they've been encouraged to issue liabilities denominated in dollars and have a, have a mismatch between uh, what they're receiving and what the liability currency is. And so whenever we have a financial crisis, the biggest short which is unveiled is that people are short the dollar, which is to say that the dollar rises. And that is just, it's untenable that the dollar could rise in this environment because it would be a very deflationary on a kind of, yes, the economy's had this great um, long march of economic um, expansion, but the magnitude of that expansion, so the, the the duration of the expansion has been wonderful. The magnitude of the expansion has been, yeah. And there's a feeling. And again, if you look at the pricing of treasuries, the last thing you want is to inflict a 20% rise in the dollar vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And so the Fed is there. It's it's an appointed guardian of, of the the US and, and I want to say the global economy. And for the the, the the Fed, or and technically it's the Treasury, but you know, between them, they are, I think, obliged to. It's become like a plimsoll line, um, and 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 the ship, the the mighty ship of the the U.S. economy, uh, will start to take on water and and will start to sink if the dollar rises, um, and so it it all costs it can't rise, and so if it can't rise, then uh, the Treasury has to be selling dollars. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's agents, the, the Fed are putting out huge swap lines to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so. And this is, then this is the dollar versus, let's say the Dixie, which is a basket of currencies to listeners who are unfamiliar or how, how are you looking at that piece uh, with the currency? It's, it's against everything. Um, mm-hmm. So there's two mm-hmm. points. It's, it's dollar versus the world, okay? So, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. where it gets interesting is, um, why not be a rogue notion? Why not be a rogue nation, uh, and, and break away from that system? And as a precedent, I want to, I want to give you the fact that the UK, um, was the first to, Walk away from the gold standard in, I want to say 1927. Forgive me, it's been, my, my mind's a bit, uh, fuggy. Uh, but I want to say, if I say 1927 and everyone was like, what? Are you guys crazy? You're going to be destroyed. And yet, um, the, the UK, of course, clearly had an economic, a profound economic recession, but it did, it, it actually had probably one of the shallowest economic fallouts from from everything that they came after the Wall Street crash, and largely because it had broke away from from the system. Um, and I I kind of want to and 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 fast forward like eighty odd years, ninety years, hundred years, um, ninety years, and we have Brexit, which I thought was kind of that same breaking of the and, and it was kind of 
breaking away from a fixed exchange rate system, except sterling wasn't part of the euro. Um, but again, maybe actually what it is, is that a country like Japan or Europe has to go rogue and it has to take one further step out in terms of being so take Japan. Japan has deflation because of an ideology. Japan does not have deflation because it is technically impossible to create inflation. Let me say that again. Japan has suffered um, um, what would you call Japan? Japan has suffered mediocre growth, a, a lack of dynamism. It has suffered like no inflation, arguably modest disinflation for a generation. It has done so owing to the ideology of policymakers, I believe. Um, if Japan chose, uh, Japan could be growing at um, 4% per annum. And the way of doing so, and, 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 and so this again is all princes of yen. Um, Japan was very fearful of uh, trade restrictions back in the late 1980s when its trade surplus was incredibly high. Um, and the US was saying, well, this is, we're getting a raw deal. I'm kind of shuttering plants in the Midwest because you guys keep like, you know, coming in and taking us out. So the idea was let's like promote economic growth in Japan and we're going to bring in US exports. So message to the policymaker was generate economic growth. And what I'm saying to you is put me in charge of any economy in the world and tell me you want that economy to grow and I will deliver it. Um, right. And it's, right. it's ideology that's preventing that from happening. Right. And how does the quantitative easing and some of the, the policies that the BOJ started first and now we're seeing around the world, and especially with the Fed, factor into this as far as the dollar and kind of this whole, sure. this whole message they, they that we're fact, talking about here? They factor into this in that um, it has not been um, – successfully implemented. Again, it's ideology. Uh, centrist politicians and policymakers were persuaded in the aftermath of the fallout from 2008, so how this conversation began in the aftermath of the crisis of 2008. And the notion of a moral hazard was created. And that moral hazard said that because the taxpayer had not being the irresponsible agent, we could not, i.e. we, the state, could not call upon the agency of government to, to bail out the banks. And therefore, we'd kind of, we've kind of almost pursued an Andrew Mellon sovereign principle of purging the rottenness from our economies. And so, yes, they have pursued quantitative easing. And what is quantitative easing? Quantitative easing is the expansion um, of risk assets on the balance sheet of central banks. To put that in context, changes in the money supply represent both the change in the balance sheet of the central bank and the change in the balance sheet of the commercial private banks. And so what they've done is they have had a massive expansion in the central bank balance sheet where the velocity of circulation is kind of zero. And then they have, with this moral hazard, they've done everything to prevent a risk culture re-emerging that would see the commercial banks grow their balance sheets. And because of that, whilst we've had staggering monetary printing, we've had no runaway prices. And I think we've come to what I'd call the third and the final chapter in that story. And it's kind of why I've started to re-engage um, publicly, if you will. The third act has begun. And the third act is by 
by, by fate, the third act has been brought on by this pandemic. But the third act, I think, is that the authorities, because the centre ground is going to be eliminated. Macron has no chance of being re-elected and his equivalents elsewhere have no chance of being re-elected unless they can create a dynamic economic GDP expansion. And the only way that can happen is if they are willing to jettison moral hazard and encourage the banking sector to expand. And I go one step further. I think the radicalism, which is you will see there will never be an announcement. This will be a technical change. But they're going to reintroduce the uh, the uh, they're going to reintroduce window guidance, which is to say they're going to give each bank a quarter for, for loans and a target for growth. And and if you don't meet that quarter, you're no longer a bank. I think that's the, that's the future. Yeah, and then it, there's been an ongoing debate on the podcast talking about this one camp says, okay, QE is really just an asset swap, as you kind of alluded to, where you know, the Fed, you know, creates the digital money and buys these treasuries from primary dealers. And then the, you know, these banks are credited with reserves. So there's this kind of asset swap. Um, but then there's this whole other argument where the, the Fed is remitting all that interest back to the treasury. And so, you know, it's, it's almost like the Fed is just buying it from, from the treasury, even though, there's this kind of middleman with the primary dealer. Now, as you mentioned, it, it didn't cause that type of inflation that some people thought, but it had other types of effects. Some people argue the inflation of asset prices. Is, where do you come down on that, on, the, on okay. those uh, different pieces? So I, I would say that there are, I don't know, four or five. Uh, there's a manual in, in every treasury department in the world, how you deal with an economy which has been laid low by a deflationary shock. Mm-hmm. Caused by a, an abrupt reversal in risk asset prices. Um, number one, you, you, the monetary authority, you go to the banking, you, you recapitalize the banking sector by offering to buy, um, assets at way above market. Mm-hmm. You don't care. Okay. There's no cost to you. So I'm Japan. Um, it's, it's 1945, 1946, um, and the American, you know, custodians go in and say, okay, uh, Bank of Japan, we, uh, we want to buy, um, your Toshiba, uh, debt. And the Toshiba debt's worthless. Uh, Toshiba or Hitachi or Sony or, I mean, let's think of iconic Japanese companies. Uh, I'm going to offer you for this thing that's marked in your books at like five cents on the dollar. I'm going to offer you 80 cents. Okay, bang. Okay, so we've done that. That was tarp one, tarp two, and various manifestations of that in Europe. Um, what else have we done? Um, we have, we kind of looked at Texas, we found the Hunt brothers, and we thought, oh, <laughs> why don't we corner a market? I don't know. What, what do banks want? They own treasuries. Hey, why, why don't we buy lots of treasuries? Mm-hmm. And, and they bought lots of treasuries and they've, they've created, you know, to, to people visiting us from the past, like for someone who was suddenly jettisoned into today from 1975, they, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, they would say there's been a bubble created in the price of a uh, U.S. treasury or German uh, treasury, uh, treasury securities. So you generated a, a, a price bubble, which has created um, an enormous profit for the banks. And by extension, it's pushed the financial community further out the risk curve. And therefore, you've had that. You've had bubble-like price phenomena across the risk spectrum. So step one, step two, classic textbook, perfect. Okay. Um, Mistakes. Basel three, <laughs> the regulation and supervision of the international monetary banking system. The longest suicide note written in history. Okay. Completely cuts against 
the notion of remedy and reconciliation and forgiveness. It cut, it's preventing recovery. Because we've done step one, step two in the, in the central bank manual. Yeah. Step three is you make accounting and account, you make and promote accounting changes, which allow the banks again to improve their profit, improve their profitability in order to foster more capital strength in order to foster a greater risk-taking appetite such that loan growth will pick up. And with loan, loan growth begets more loan growth begets economic growth. And these bozos have done the opposite. And they've done so because of moral hazard. So it has been ideology. Okay. And the only good thing about the pandemic is maybe that ideology maybe kicked into touch. So that's step, uh, step three. Because they've messed around so much, I'm saying to you that, so all of, so two good steps, the top one, top two, the cornering of the treasury market and creating a bubble so that the banks create significant profits, like really smart, really wise. Then like the reversal, um, Basel three and, and like really, really making it difficult to foster risk appetite or because there's no profit maximization in the banking sector. Step four, another major reversal, really a reversal that's, that's, that's only been seen in Japan and Europe, which has been negative official intervention rates. I'm kind of not smart enough to tell you on a kind of at a granular level why negative policy rates are bad for banks. I'm, I'm sure smart people listening to this can come back and offer their guidance. But I think if I was, I think if you look at the relative price chart of the US banking system post 2008 versus Europe and Japanese banks, you see the damage laid low by negative policy rates. So if you, I think we've reached a point where two goods, two good points have been cancelled by two bad points. And again, we're back kind of tottering between the abyss of kind of this deflation or runaway prices. Okay. So finally to, to close this one out, what if you want to move forward, if you are moving forward without ideology and your principal objective is economic expansion at a rate where people quickly feel more prosperous, you come back with window guidance and you, you become Anne Randian and the state kind of nationalizes the credit mechanism. And we say, if you sit and you tell all European banks, to expand their loan book annually at 10% per annum, I promise you, European GDP growth for 2022-2023 is going to be 4%. And you keep that going, and people are going to like you if you're the politician. And and so that's fanciful thinking, but I want to leave you with this. So I've got a 5 million euro loan Financing you know, some of my investment activities in property on the island of St. Paul's. Um, I'm paying 2% fixed, fixed for 20 years. Okay. I think that's the wrong price given the risk. But two things. Uh, the, the, the bank phoned me and said, Hey, listen, you know, we've got a pandemic and the French government have said to us they would, they would like to facilitate and help. And therefore you don't have to pay interest for the next six months. Is that something that would interest you? And like, yes, that is something that would interest me. Okay. Then I get a follow-up. We've been thinking, the French government being back on the phone. <laughs> French government are, are asking, uh, would you be interested in borrowing? We're willing to lend you 20% of what you had outstanding in debt last year. And is an interest-only loan no greater than 0.25, 25 basis points. And it's yours for five years, and then we're willing to discuss extension after five years. Is that something that would interest you? And the answer is very definitely. So I start from a kind of intellectual posturing, but it's kind of invading. It's like this, like the, this virus being this phantom menace. It's kind of coming through the vents, and it's kind of coming through 
broadband and I'm seeing it in my email. So who knows? And that gives me, that makes me, that, that all, do you know, all that, all that does is it gives, it gives credence to this crazy observation that volatility and equity prices rose together in the month of April. And that therefore might be a precursor that the kind of 90% probability pricing that this is a, that the future is disinflationary and possibly deflationary may be wrong. That actually we are crossing over into a new quantitative easing regime, which is central bank plus commercial bank balance sheet expansion. And that is a, an equation which could lead to runaway prices. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the last question on that piece is there's been talk about when Volcker had to raise rates and kind of bring down the hammer um, during that inflation period, the debt to GDP was much lower at the time. And here in the U.S., it's much, much higher. So I guess there's that question where people say, well, the Fed really can't allow rates to, to get ahead on the long end of the curve or lose control. And they have kind of unlimited ability to do this yield curve control and, and keep rates pegged on the long end, not just the short end, but the long end too. What, what, what are your comments on that? Sure. So that is, forgive me if I'm getting the acronym wrong, but I want to call that, that is modern monetary theory, which is you can do whatever the heck you want to do. Doesn't matter. You're the boss. You can do it. Which kind of rhymes with the last <laughs> 12 years. Yeah. Um, let's qualify. You can do whatever the heck you want to do. As long as you can, you can control the yield curve and you can control the value of your, your currency. And presently that's the case. So I want to tell you that um, all of those, that the crisis will not come from the yield curve rising. It will not come from the policymakers having to raise rates to defend currency. Not going to happen. It's going to come from the cultural, political economy and events like the pandemic. And it's going to come from the revolt of the debtors who are sickened by having lost out on this amazing march of prosperity, which has been you know, at all times disproportionately shared um, and, and, and divvied out to the creditors as opposed to the ordinary person. And the manifestation of that is going to be more and more um, political extremism. So if you don't want that, centrist parties should be contacting Hugh Hendry, official on Instagram, and asking for my advisory service to run and shake up monetary management because Hugh Hendry official, I guarantee you, can make America great again. Well, Hugh, it was great to have you on. We're going to link those profiles in the show notes, make it easy for people to find. You already gave a shout out on that earlier. And, um, any last thoughts? Otherwise, we're uh, really happy to have you. Okay. So this is, I, forgive me, I'm, I'm verbose. Um, I've given great consideration to this. I've kind of spoken to things which I'm going to tweet soon. Um, and so, like, again, if you, if you search on the, the data that you're going to provide, you, you'll see how to follow me. But, um, and what I've said is we've probably jumped and like, you know, we've, we've jumped from one to another and it's complicated, but I'm going to, I promise you, I'm going to work out how to thread a tweet and I'm going to tweet a long explanation of what we've just said. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks, you. Really happy to have you.
Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.